I'm going to start with an illustration and then I'll finish with another illustration uh, on the things that we want to look at today and I want to finish up drawing our attention, attention to the, the full assurance that we can have in the scriptures and in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be looking at verses 7 uh, through to 12 of chapter 1 and uh, we'll see amongst other things what God has done in the past what God has done in the present and what God will do in the future regarding our salvation. But we're going to look first of all at verse 8 and this shows us what we should do. And uh, let me read it. It says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Notice how it starts. Be not thou therefore. And uh, the old adage is, you probably know it, that whenever you see a therefore, you should look to see what it is therefore. Right, so that means you have to go back to what's gone before because what therefore is saying is on the grounds or on the basis of what's gone before so now this so that means we have to go back to verse 7 to see what the context is and that says for God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind now hopefully I can get this to work good For God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now, where does fear come from? Well, it depends. There are different sorts. It can come from different places. I'll give you just two examples from the Old Testament. There is a type of fear which is a godly fear. And this means a reverence, a respect for God, an amazement at his awe and wonder and that spirit of bowing before him. For example, in the first uh, chapter of Proverbs, verse 7, it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of... I thought you'd say wisdom. (laughs) It says that somewhere else. This one says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's interesting, isn't it? But fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's a godly fear of the Lord. But then there's another sort of fear. And if it's not the fear of God, what do you think it is? The fear of man. And the word often used for that means a trembling. And that's something that I find much more easy to identify. We're fearers of men more than fearers of God. But what does it say again in Proverbs 29? The fear of man bringeth a snare, something that will trap us, hold us down, limit us. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Isn't that lovely to know? Now, here, 
The fearfulness that's being talked about uh, is from a word fright. Basically, he's not giving us the spirit of fear. It's talking about cowardice and timidity, that which we naturally have. And there are certain suggestions that Timothy knew something of that timid in some sense or another. That describes me naturally. I am naturally fearful and timid. But that spirit does not come from God. So where does it come from? There's only one other place, isn't there? From Satan. It's that sort of fear that made the evil servant bury his talent in the parable Jesus was talking of in Matthew. If he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, what has he given us? And you see here three things in this verse. He's given us a spirit of power. The spirit of power. That's not the kind of power that we consider in the world because that can be very dangerous. Look what's been going on in the Middle East just recently. Kings and rulers showing their power in frightening ways. It can go to people's heads. They become cruel. They become unkind, even sadistic. Uh, tyrants, as uh, so we can be well aware. Um, but the power that God gives is the opposite of that, uh, is the opposite of timidity and cowardice uh, <clears throat> as well. It's the courage and resolve to face difficulties and dangers. That's the spirit of power that God gives to us. Remember what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission? All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore. And then he said, for I am with you always. The spirit of power, the spirit of love. Again, this is not the sort of love that can be known in the world. It's not a, a, a soppy love. It's not naive. It's not misplaced. Uh, it's not misjudged. But it's a love, first of all, towards God and a love for God that carries us through opposition. Our minds are set and our sights on something higher, which is more meaningful. And uh, <clears throat> it sets us apart from the fear of man when we're trusting that. The spirit of love. Love towards God and that then is reflected in our love towards man. It's a real love, a deep love. Selfless, sacrificial, unwavering. It sees deep down to the needs, not only of the body and the mind, but the needs of the soul. Let me look at the crowd as my saviour did, goes at him, till my eyes with tears grow dim. Another verse says, I ask, dear Lord, uh, sorry, dear Lord, I ask for the eyes that see deep down to the world's sore need. That doesn't come naturally. Jesus saw beyond the worldly needs. He saw the depths of the soul. A spirit of love and a sound mind. Again, not like the world's. Where power can be a power can be abused, uh, but it's a sound mind is one which 
which has an outward expression and an inward expression. Outwardly, it acts with courage. And the power is controlled. The love is directed. And it operates with strong, principled, uh, biblical faith and conviction. That's outwardly. But then inwardly, it's wonderful as well. Because despite all the attacking doubts I may get and the fickle imaginations that can go through the mind and that can haunt one, fears about even your assurance of salvation, that sound mind is one which despite all these things which can happen on the surface has a quietness of mind and a peace with ourselves and with God. And so this is what verse 7 is talking about. And uh, what's he saying? On the basis of these things, verse 8, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now, he's going on now therefore into what we should do what we should do in verse 8. Be thou therefore, uh, be thou th not therefore ashamed, first of all, of the testimony of our Lord. There will be misunderstanding, misinterpretation of what we mean and do, misrepresentation to others of what we are, and we should expect affliction and suffering and opposition. But be not thou ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We should not be surprised, so don't be surprised when things apparently go wrong, when you're rejected, or maybe when you're having a conversation and, and, and that seems to go wrong, you're hoping to speak about things of God and it's so easy to think, oh dear, I've got it wrong, I've failed again, I've made a mess of it. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. We shouldn't be surprised when there's this sort of discouragement. And we shouldn't be frightened. That's what the natural thing is. But if we're trusting in God, we shouldn't be frightened. Neither should we be ashamed. Isn't it easy to be ashamed? That's the snare that Peter fell into. The fear of man. He followed afar off. He sat down by the fire with the others. And then the snare came and he denied his Lord. How easy it is to fall into that trap. And having done that, then you feel so ashamed and so discouraged. Peter went out and wept bitterly. But at least he did do that. And then continued to trust the Lord as time went on. So be not ashamed, first of all, of the testimony of our Lord. Secondly, nor of me, his prisoner. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy 
of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Our first struggle is often that of being identified with Christ. But then our second struggle can equally be the shame being identified with his followers. Fear of association with those who stood for the Lord and perhaps who are despised or laughed at, belittled, mocked by others. If we're ashamed of him now, can we expect him not to be ashamed of us then? But, he says, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Not only to sympathize with those who suffer, but to be ready also to suffer as well. And it's all very well saying these things. It's, it's so easy uh, just to say, don't hold back from being bold. But for my saying that, I'm being hypocritical, aren't I? Because how do I do it? How do I stand up? I'm so scared. That is my nature. But it goes on to answer that again in more detail. What does it say? Be thou partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God. It's coming back to that same thing. And look, it goes into it in more detail. Now we're getting down more to the roots. I did say I'd start with an illustration which I then forgot to mention. Consider a tree. You have trees around here, don't you? And you've got the boughs, you've got the branches which will swing around in the wind and they might even whirl in a gale, bits for break off. And maybe some branches there which are dead and decaying and they need to be got rid of because it will spread. But what gives the real strength to the tree? Is it the trunk? Well, partly. But even more than that, it's the roots that go down. If the roots are weak, the whole thing can blow over. But if the roots are solid, some branches may break off, but the trunk still remains there. This is now getting down to the roots. As we look at verse 9, we see what God has done for us in the past. What does it say? Who has saved us. Saved us from what? Saved us from our sin and its consequences. Saved us from ourselves. Saved us from the sentence of death. He has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling. He has called us. And yet the scriptures say, Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. He is calling us and we are to call him in response. As we said to the children, to call out to him because of the mess you're in, because of your sin, 
Conscience condemns you. There's a fear about death. Yesterday morning I came downstairs um, during the morning. I'd heard someone had come in, went into the kitchen, greeted them, next door neighbor, and then Angela said, they're here with uh, bad news. And this lady's husband had just died on Thursday evening. And immediately your attitude is brought down to earth. There is something about death. There's a fear in it. And the Bible explains what it is because after death comes the judgment. We're not ready for it as we are. But Christ can prepare us for it. He's called us with a holy calling. And uh, <clears throat> what does it mean by a holy calling? It means being separated out from this world. Uh, not being bound and, uh, to and influenced by the world's mindset and its philosophies, its desire for fleshly uh, satisfactions and um, uh, <clears throat> maybe in the pleasures of this world, it may be in the selfish desire for position, for progress, all the things which at the end of life actually mean nothing if they're in their wrong context. In 1 John chapter 2, what does the apostle say? Love is not, uh, sorry, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. If we are concerned about that which God hates, we will come with a penitent heart to Christ, to God. And that will be the continuing experience of us. Not just a passing phase, but oh, I should be humbled by my own failure. I should be amazed that God can still be gracious to me. He's called us with a holy calling to come apart from those things of the world. How do we do it? Well, here we go. Verse 9. Saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. We can contribute nothing. We merit absolutely nothing. We have no leg to stand on. It's not according to our works. So what is it according to? Well, it's right there. But according to his own purpose. God has purposes for his people and for his eternal glory and how he deals with us and handles us and what he does to us and for us comes out to his eternal glory. Us, poor sinners. But remembering, remember, suffering can be part of that. 
purpose of his for us. But according to his own purpose and grace, if there's nothing merited in us, then it has to be all of his grace. For by grace are ye saved. And in Titus chapter 3 it says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of degeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour that being justified by his grace, we should be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that incredible? But now, the amazing question. What does it say at the end of the verse? Which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It was given to us in Christ. But here's the biggest question. When was it given to us? What does it say? Before the world began. Back in eternity, God's plan of salvation was being accomplished for me. You see, not only does it speak of Christ in these terms, when it says in Revelation, speaking of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but it speaks of us as here in those terms. What was done for us before the foundation? And in Ephesians chapter 1 again, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And this verse undergirds those truths. It confirms them, it puts a seal upon them. What God has done in the past for me. That's verse 9. But then there's verse 10. And that tells us what God has done in the present. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings to light and makes sense of all those pictures and shadows in the Old Testament which couldn't be fully appreciated and realized. When Jesus came... He literally gave body to all those pictures and types. And what has been in the dark and the shadows becomes brilliantly light. It makes sense. But what here, in this brief comment, does it draw attention to regarding Christ? What does it say? Who has abolished death. Does that mean we won't die? No. Not physically, it doesn't mean that. But spiritually, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He's abolished death. And what's the other thing? He has brought life and immortality 
to light through the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? That's what God has done in the present. So verse 9 is the past. That's one of your big roots of the tree. Verse 10 is the present. Another big root of the tree. Verse 11 has a little digression for a moment. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. And now we come on to what God, I'm tempted to say, what God has already done in the future because it's that sure. So what does he say? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against or until that day. So, what is God doing in the future? Forgive me, getting stuck here. Let's go through it. Let's see what Paul's confidence is about the future. For I know whom I have believed. That displays total confidence. And am persuaded, totally convinced, that he is able to keep. What's that? Total trust. That he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him. That's myself. That's my sin. That's my destiny. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against or until that day. Until that day of judgment. And obviously beyond as well. Isn't that incredible? That's your third root of the tree, if you like. Verse 9, it was given us in Christ before the world began, and it has lasted until now. And verse 12, he is able to keep it until that day. What further assurance do I need than that? I said I'd finish with an illustration. And I'm going to come back to those seatbelts, but in a different light. I'm going to ask you a question now. Your standard seatbelt in your car. How many anchorage points are there? Three. One is here. Right? The past. That which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What did I have to do with that? Nothing. That was all his work. There is an anchor point that doesn't depend upon me. Then there's another one. An anchor point this side. In the future, that which I have committed unto him, he is able to keep until that day. What do I have to do with that? Nothing. That's his work. Two strong anchor points for my security in the car, if you like. But then there's the third one. Well, that's this strap here, isn't it? 
the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, ratchet strap? No, there's a name for it, isn't there? Um, but anyway, I've got a certain amount of movement. I can move around, a bit of freedom. I can do things a bit right, I can do things a bit wrong. But ultimately, that strap, what's it called? Inertia reel. I can pull it around like this, but if I snatch it, what happens? It goes solid. So when you hit something, all of a sudden, that third one is safe as well. Now, I live in this world with my fickle mind and making mistakes, this and that, and I'm allowed a certain amount of freedom. But when the jolt of death comes, even that one will be firm. And there I am, two solid anchors here and now a solid anchor there, even though I've been perhaps messing around in the present. What deeper assurance can I have than that? I sometimes say that, and this is just my way of thinking, that there are two types of assurance. There's subjective assurance, which sort of depends somewhat on me, my feelings. And then there's objective assurance. I feel, oh dear, I've made such a mess. I can't be a Christian. I'm too bad. Then I think of a verse like Hebrews 7.25. He's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Oh, and that gives me encouragement and assurance. And then there may be other thoughts. Uh, he wouldn't want me any longer the way I am. Ah, none can pluck them out of my hand. Oh, that gives me assurance, makes me feel good, right? But objective assurance are these anchor points which are outside even my sphere at all because it's God's work and ultimately I depend upon that. And from eternity past, my salvation has been granted to me to eternity future. Why do I wobble with my assurance in the middle? <laughs> it doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon him. And it says in Revelation, well, if my name is written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, it will still be found there then. May God be blessed for that assurance. Let's turn in our hymn books then. The last hymn, number 630. Who now shall God's elect condemn when Christ had for his ran their ransom died? Rising, he intercedes for them, and they in him are satisfied. Nor tribulation, nakedness, nor famine, peril, or the sword, nor persecution or distress shall ever separate from Christ the Lord. Nor life, nor death, nor depth, nor height, nor powers below, nor powers above, nor present things, nor things to come can change his purpose of love. Isn't that wonderful? 630. <clears throat>
death, nor depth, nor height, nor powers below, nor powers above, nor present things, nor things to come, can change his purposes of love. His sovereign mercy knows no bounds, his faithfulness shall still endure, and those who on his word rely shall find his truth forever sure. Heavenly Father, we bless you for the uh, truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it brings to us your sure promises. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we ultimately do not depend in any way upon ourselves. Our trust is fully in Christ, in your promises. And we thank you that we are forever secure, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done and what you will do. We bless you for that assurance and we pray that we might live in the light of it though Satan would do all he can to distract us from that confidence. Father, we commend ourselves to you that we might live out the testimony of assurance with boldness, with courage, with confidence and that others might see that which is real in us is of you. In Jesus' name, amen.